Hi and welcome back to Police Story Podcast. I'm Dave and this is a series of short stories about my 28 year career in the UK police force. So in this incident uh, we're going to talk about um, a night that I spent fairly early on in my career again. I was probably 22 with about three months in the police uh, so very very inexperienced still. I came in for a a night shift which varies depending on where you work but timing wise is probably either 10 p.m or 11 p.m um, through till sort of six or seven in the morning um, dreaded as you get older certainly uh, in my last few years in the job you know they were really really difficult to get through the night um, yeah always found them difficult but when when you're young you know when I was young no problems at all and invariably this sort of juicier things happen which is a young cop is exactly what you want so I actually quite look forward to them and then could sleep no problems during the day you know um, but definitely as time goes on in your career or as you get older um, it's a double-edged sword because not only is it quite tough to stay awake all night or I certainly found it to become so in my sort of latter years um, but then you can't sleep during the day, so it's uh, it's a difficult time. So and of course, depending on how many shifts you have in a row, again, in my early service, you used to do seven nights on the trot, or you could do that was the sort of worst part of your shift. So seven nights of I think it was ten p.m. till six a.m. Um, the only thing was that as the week went on, you sort of got into a bit more of a routine. But still, if you couldn't sleep during the day. You were just getting consistently more and more tired as the week went on. And certainly once you become a response driver, so you're driving on blue lights, I also thought it was crazy that um, certainly in central London, uh, you could have people driving, you know, at 100 mile an hour on uh, sort of busy traffic filled roads where you need to have your eyes out on stalks concentrating. And they might have only had like three or four hours sleep, you know, over a period of days building up. So dangerous really but um at the end of the day you've got to have people that that work nights you know uh, obviously policing is a, is a 24 7 thing um so anyway on this occasion i came in for my night shift and it was uh, i think a 10 o'clock start and i was immediately tasked to go to the hospital now again as a cop uh, you spend a lot of time in hospital one way or another because whether that's um somebody who's already been arrested um, but has then had to go to hospital, that's very common. Um, maybe they're injured. Uh, very usual is that uh, upon arrest, they then try and swallow drugs or maybe are successful in swallowing drugs um, and therefore have to go to hospital to be monitored, have stomach pumps out or whatever, but they're still under arrest. You don't just walk away because obviously at the first opportunity, they'll be off on their toes and uh, and away. So invariably a cop will be sat with them and depending on what they've done and sort of whether they're violent etc they may well be handcuffed and certainly I've seen people kind of you know handcuffed to beds and things was fairly normal certainly back in the early days um, a really boring task for a cop you know but you do get to really see <clears throat> excuse me what goes on in hospitals you know and it's it's an eye-opener when if you're in a busy A&E department just how busy those people are you know such a such a tough job for them so uh yes i was 
sent to the hospital immediately as soon as I started work. Wasn't really told too much, just told go straight to the hospital. And it wasn't my normal hospital, it, you know, my sort of local area. It was one on the border of, of where I worked, which was uh, I knew was a, a far more sort of specialist hospital for, for serious injuries. So I knew it probably wasn't going to be good. And what had actually happened was on a local industrial state, uh, there'd been reports of a small fire. So the fire brigade had been called and sent out to the the location. Um, and they had unfortunately found that the small fire was uh, a man, a, a body, or what appeared to be a body, who'd been set on fire. Now, there was never any witnesses to this. And I know for a fact that they never actually caught the person responsible. So frustratingly, I don't even know what the background to this was particularly. Um, you know, there's so many reasons why this guy could have been set on fire. It could have been, you know, a family feud. It could have been a drug debt. You know, there's so many different things it could have been. Um, but they never, ever found out the reason why or who did it. But ultimately, somebody had poured petrol over this guy uh, and set him alight. Um, and obviously, everyone expected him to die. But amazingly, he didn't. So he was taken from the scene to this specialist sort of Burns Hospital that was fairly nearby. Um, and then obviously they did loads of work on him and put him in a room. Now, the reality was, you know, right from the get go, they knew he was going to die. It was just a matter of time. So he was placed into a room and he had a hospital guard on him, a police officer put in the room with him, which was the role I was to take over. Uh, that had already been in place for, you know, an hour or two prior to me getting there because he'd been found later on in the evening before I'd come to work. So the reason they do that, firstly, to protect the person. This person effectively has a threat to life against them. So you would regularly go and be, you know, um, on hospital watch or a hospital guard. Um, and yeah, in some cases that was to look after that person and to ensure they weren't attacked again, because obviously somebody has gone you know, has attempted to kill this person. So there is a threat to life against them. So we need some sort of protection for them. So that's the first instance. The second one sometimes can be what we call a continuity officer. So in that scenario, let's say a stabbing, for example, a gang stabbing, of which I went to quite a few of, you would always send a cop from the scene that had found them when they were very first uh, came to police notice that would travel in the ambulance with them and then sit with them or stay with them while they had the um, the initial um, treatment. Now, again, that was for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to protect them, as we've talked about. You had the unfortunate scenario sometimes where if there'd been a, a gang sort of shooting or stabbing, you might have had two or three injured at the scene quite seriously. And the problem was you don't have the luxury of sending them all off to different hospitals to stop them fighting. So you'd have these people from opposing gangs that hate each other enough to go to the same hospital and then be treated. Even worse, you'd then get their friends come to the waiting room to wait for them, or you could do. So now you've got these perfectly sort of able-bodied uh, people in the waiting room from separate gangs that hate each other, that have just come from a fight where their power's been either stabbed or shot, and invariably are carrying weapons themselves. So a couple of times that went really wrong, you know, you can imagine. So certainly, again, in central London, if you had the luxury, you would be trying to send them off to different hospitals because you have a lot of hospitals in London in a fairly small geographic area. You know, London's not that big. Um, 
So you might have had half a dozen major hospitals there that you could send sort of different gang members off to. Um, so yes, yeah, so one of the reasons is you're sat in the room uh, to protect them. Secondly, you've got this continuity officer that travels from the scene where the incidents happened in the ambulance with them to where the treatment was. So I got to see a lot of the treatment that went on, which again, I have to say, a bit like the death side of things, I found really, really interesting, not being from a medical background, um, to the point that, you know, if someone was stabbed, I knew the chances are they were going to have to drain that person's lung, you know, so they were going to be putting a, a drain in his side and things. You know, I started to um, become used to not, not only seeing, but having a pretty good idea of what they were going to do in terms of treatment, depending on how the person presented, which actually going forward, first aid wise, was quite useful for me because I learned quite a lot. But the other reason you're there is just in case they suddenly blurt out some sort of evidence. Now, there is a chance that evidence could be what they call hearsay evidence, which is kind of third-hand evidence, something that they've heard somebody say about somebody else, for example. That sometimes, or virtually all times, can be inadmissible in court. So if you've heard it, it can be useful. And the other thing is, it can be for what they call a dying declaration. Now, this is a very unusual scenario, but... Uh, for it to be admissible in court, I believe, uh, basically the person would have to know or have a pretty good idea that they're going to die from their injuries. They then blurt out um, what happened, for example, or maybe who did it to them. Because you're sat there listening to this and because that person is or strongly believes they're going to die and then subsequently does die, that is what's known as a dying declaration. And that is then admissible in court. So that's another reason why they always have a cop sat in the room. But what it can mean for cops is that you are sat there for hours and hours and hours, which is exactly what happened in the case we're talking about, just in case, you know, they make this dying declaration. <clears throat> I mean, the reality is the guy I was looking after was in no position to make any sort of declaration. He was heavily, heavily sedated, thankfully, because, you know, had he been conscious I dread to think of the pain he'd be in this guy had my understanding was 99% burns that was certainly what I was told now whether that is true I don't know whether you can have 99% burns and survive for any length of time I'm not entirely sure that's certainly what I was told he was horrifically burnt I mean it really was uh, an unpleasant scene and the smell of course is is something else as well burnt flesh I'm afraid you know it does smell like pork. It's like being at a barbecue, but not in a good way, you know, especially if you combine it with what you're seeing before you, you know, when you're seeing literally someone burnt to a crisp and realising this this was a person, you know, and at that time, you know, that was still a living person who not only was just looking in such a terrible state, but then what they also had to do overnight with this guy was um, they had to cut him with a scalpel from the top of each shoulder, right down his torso, and all the way down the front of his thighs and his shins. Um, so he had these two very large scalpel cuts running the entire length of his body uh, down the, the sides of his torso and on the front of his legs. And that was because I understand that when you have very bad burns, or in fact any burns, the body, I believe, tries to form a blister over the wound because it's trying to stop infection getting in. Now, if you've just, you know, burnt your hand on the kettle, you'll get a small blister uh, and that will protect the wound and there's no problems. Of course, the fluid for that blister 
which has healing properties, um, is drawn from your body's uh, kind of, you know, water reserves. But you can imagine if your entire body, to say this guy was uh, was meant to be, you know, 99% burn, if that is possible. Um, so you imagine his body is trying to draw all this fluid from what may already be a dehydrated body to form these massive, massive um, ulcers to protect him. Blisters rather, not ulcers, sorry. And, um, and what was going to happen was, uh, as his body was sort of swelling up, they knew that his skin was going to split uh, because of this swelling. Uh, so to save the poor guy, I would say he was uh, sedated to the point that he was unconscious, thankfully. But that's why they put these long cuts down his body um, to protect him. Well, or to, to stop his skin sort of tearing in that way. Um, so, yeah, really, really unpleasant scene and a very bizarre scenario because the one little bit of him that wasn't burnt, and this was the only visible bit, bearing in mind obviously he was lying on his back, was his penis. So I was faced again, and I said to you before that, you know, regularly in the police, you find yourself sitting in a situation when you actually sort of take stock of it, you think, what other job would I find myself in this position? You know, it's just bizarre. And if, if you told someone, this is my job, I'm not sure they'd believe you. So this particular evening, I spent from, uh, you know, by the time I got up there, maybe 11 o'clock at night, perhaps midnight through till 6am when I was relieved. So I was just, picture the scene, I'm sat in this dark room, there's barely any lights on, there's me sat on a chair in the corner, there's the poor guy in front of me who, as I said, is absolutely burnt to a crisp apart from his penis. So there's this just one piece of him that isn't burnt that is kind of literally in, in your face. It's quite a small room. Um, and then he's got these horrific two cuts all the way down his body. And then there's the smell. As I said, unfortunately, like burnt pork is the closest I can put it to, but really, really strong. Um, and in this room... It's absolutely deathly silent. It's not like you're sitting in there having a chat with anyone. Um, really, really quiet. And the only noises are the heart rate monitor. And then he had, I believe, a machine assisting his breathing, which was effectively acting as his lungs, inflating and deflating. So there is this kind of soft whooshing of this machine, very rhythmically opening and closing as it puts air into him, and then there's the steady beep, beep, beep of his heart rate, and just me sat in that room for six hours. And you put all those factors together, and it was a, a really strange night. You know, you have a, there's a lot of soul searching goes on in a situation like that. You're sat there hearing and seeing and smelling these things. It's, um, yeah, it was a very, very strange night. So I sat there through the night and that was it. Six, six in the morning, I was relieved. I, another cop turned up from early term uh, to take over from me. And that was me off, uh, off back home. And, and very strange, you know, because invariably when you finish your shift, it's not like you're going off your powers to have a chat or whatever. In, an, in a nice world, and occasionally it happened, some shifts had a bit of a habit that kind of, if they finished at six, 
if they had the opportunity, and this was pretty rare, five o'clock in the morning, they might gather for a last cup of tea or coffee before they go home. And that's really useful because that just gives cops a chance to have a chat. And even though you're just chatting and they call it canteen culture, sometimes it wasn't always good. Um, but invariably, it was like a debrief. You know, it wasn't a formal debrief that you had counsellors sitting around or anything. But having that cup of tea or coffee to finish the shift off with, or even just sitting around with your pals while you're waiting for the stand down for your inspector, your sergeant to come in and say, OK, guys, that's it, you're done. See you tomorrow to go. Just those few minutes at the end of the day where you say, what happened with that job earlier? You know, and you, your friend says, oh, well, this happened and that happened. And so, well, you know, what I did was this. And I spent all night sat in the room with this guy, you know, and people are like, really? Wow. You know, just that's really, really important. It's just kind of putting it to bed, literally, you know, for the end of the shift. Um, and sometimes if you lose that, uh, and that's what happened in this scenario with me, where you kind of finished off. And then by the time I got travelled back to the, the police station, all my team had gone, including my sergeant. He called me on the radio and said, as soon as you get back, that's you done, just get yourself away. But of course, when I got back, no one was there. You know, everyone had gone, the, the early shift had come on and they were off out doing whatever. So I didn't really speak to him. And I came back, I handed in my, uh, you know, sort of hung my uh, police car keys up on the board, um, which off nights is something that gets regularly forgotten. And I can't tell you how many times, including myself, you get a phone call at home saying, we can't find the keys to so-and-so car. So you're like, oh no, you're lying in bed and you've probably driven half an hour back home and you just get onto your bed off a night shift, which is like heaven, you know, and you just can't wait to go to sleep. You get this phone call and you go and search your trouser pockets and realise, oh crap, you know, I've got, I've got those keys in my pocket. So sometimes they'd be kind and send someone around to collect them. Other times, depending on the scenario, they'd say, look, I'm sorry, we have to have that car today. You're going to have to bring them back. So you have to get out of bed, back into your car, half an hour, drive back to work, hand the keys over. And then invariably you'd get a cake fine the next day. So when you do things wrong in the police, I know certainly in the US police, you know, there's this thing about cops eat donuts and all the rest of it. My wife always likes to uh, wind me up and take the mickey about me uh, eating cakes at work and things. But the reality is you, you would get a cake fine. You know, if you did something at work, uh, a low level cake fine would be, you know, you're late to work, you take the keys home, etc. It gets worse and worse, um, depending on what you've done. Um, and it's a bit of fun, you know, and again, it's a bit of uh, Mickey taking, which is what the job the police survive on, you know, that's what gets you through a shift and quite frankly, through your career sometimes is a bit of uh, humour and a, a bit of Mickey taking in the most terrible of situations. But yeah, you'd get a cake fine. So the following day, you'd have to bring in, you know, donuts for the whole um, for the whole section or something as your penance for taking the keys home. Uh, so there we go. So I came back here. So I, yeah, I didn't really get any sort of uh, stand down, if you like, or or any sort of, not closure is not the right word, but you know, there was no one to sort of discuss it with at that time. At that point, I was living by myself in a small flat. So I just simply went back home and, and went to bed. But of course, you're lying there sort of thinking through the, the night and, and how weird it had been. Um, yeah, a bit of a strange one. And, and sure enough, as expected, when I came in, uh, the following night for my next night shift, I was informed, as everyone had expected, that this guy had died, um, which quite frank frankly was, you know, uh, a bit of a relief having seen the state he was in and certainly, you know, it was a release for him because, like I say, he was never going to survive and he was heavily sedated. It was just a question of, of when, really. Uh, but yes, I know, I know that was an unsolved case and they never, never found out who did that, which was weird, really, because... Um, 
on industrial estates, you know, invariably you have CCTV. Although again, don't forget, we're now going back virtually 30 years. So CCTV wasn't so widespread. And what was there was very, very grainy and quite frankly, useless. Um, we didn't have um, ANPR then, which is automatic number plate recognition. So on a lot of the main roads throughout the UK, and I'm sure throughout the world, um, you have the small cameras that basically read number plates that go by and really, really useful investigative tool because, uh, you know, if you know for a fact that your suspect travelled along a road at, you know, six o'clock, between six and seven that night, you can go and look at AMPR uh, and when you pull up the sort of computer sheet for that hour period you're looking at, you know, depending on the road you might have, I think I did one once for an hour period and I had 76 cars gone by. Well, then you start going through the list and working in a finishing up in a fairly small town as I did. Um, you knew some of those cars were local people. You recognise the registration numbers, so you could rule out twenty of them. Um, you might have ten police cars going back and forward and ambulances, where you can rule them out. There might be, you know, a dozen taxis going back and forward. So now, from my seventy-six, I'm down to about thirty. And then if you knew, for example, your vehicle was blue and you're going through the list and going, right, that's red. No, I can discount that. That's white. No, I can discount that. You basically end up with this pool maybe of half a dozen cars that were the right time, the right color, the right make and model. So that's not a difficult task then to work through the police national computer and just see exactly who those people were. Um, yeah, ANPR, really good tool, but unfortunately wasn't in place. Um when this happened. So yeah, sadly, they never found out uh, what happened. So that is that scenario. A bit of a shorter one today. I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether shorter podcasts or longer podcasts work for you. I mean, by all means, go onto the YouTube channel, Police Story Podcasts, um, and perhaps just drop a comment in whether what works for you best, shorter or longer. I, I can mix it up. I can put in like a couple of short stories in one, or I can not necessarily make them longer, but I won't be so concerned if they get a bit longer. Um, as you've probably seen, they're around about kind of 15 to 35 minutes at the moment. There will be some very long ones that I'll split into several episodes probably, but as I said before, we'll release all at once so that you get to hear the whole story. Um, lots of downloads still coming in, thank you, you. Um, off Across various platforms, the YouTube channel seems to be taking off slowly, um, so that's good. So yeah, keep coming back if it's interesting for you and, and thanks very much for keeping up with the downloads. Um, appreciate it. And I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much. Bye.